0: This is Patrick Henningsen and you're listening to On the QT at 21 wiretv Accessing confidential data This is Patrick Henningsen And welcome to On the QT at 21Wired.tv. Thank you for joining us for this fortnightly podcast. This is free and available on our website and on other platforms uh, for the first 30 minutes. And after that, uh, you can go and click through uh, for members uh, for the remainder of the program, the remaining hour uh, at 21Wired.tv. Subscribers and members uh, will have access to this and other premium content uh, on our site, uh, video and audio. And uh, so thank you so much for joining us once again. And this is episode uh, number three of On the QT, this little hiatus between episode two and three. A couple of things happened, uh, which delayed uh, the production of this podcast a little bit, among other things. Uh, the first was uh, I had an opportunity to travel uh, relatively uh, inexpensively to do a little bit of uh, investigation, uh, and check out a few things. And part of it was a business related, uh, trip, uh, for ACR and for 21 wire. But, uh, so that, that delayed us a little bit, uh, one, I couldn't carry all the equipment with me because of the weight and the cost associated with that, uh, on traveling and internet access was challenging to say the least, uh, in some places, but, uh, but so that delayed me a little bit. The other thing is I lost a hearing in my left ear, uh, still only about 10%. This is for the last couple of weeks, so we're going to have to get that looked at. Um, it's not to do with anything hopefully serious. It's just uh, uh, routine wax buildup, which happens over the years. But it's a bit strange when you can't hear anything out of your left ear. <laughs> but uh, I think hopefully we're getting, we're getting that straightened out a little bit. Um, but uh, So apologies for the delay uh, in the release of this episode we'll be back on track this week. Uh, hopefully, actually, we'll probably release another On the QT episode 4 this week. Uh, so there'll be this one this weekend. This is kind of a special uh, broadcast. There's a lot of stuff, a lot of ground we need to cover, uh, a lot of news stories. Uh, and I did take off of the Sunday Wire last Sunday. I was just unable to uh, get a connection. Uh, thank you to Hesher at ACR and also Jay Dyer from Jay's Analysis and who's also a contributor at 21stCenturyWire.com. Thanks for filling in. That was actually a fantastic show. Uh, There's some great information there on a subject that, quite frankly, is one of the most important subjects going right now, which is uh, controlled opposition and COINTELPRO. It's a vast subject, so if you missed that program, you want to go back and listen to that on the archives. It's there let's look at the news this week. Obviously, we've got the Olympic Games going in Rio with all its uh, various and sundry dramas and little factoids. Uh, I have not watched any of the Olympics so far, uh, and I don't really intend to. Uh, normally, I love the Olympics, but it's become so political, uh, and the athletes are become such narcissistic basket cases much of the time. Uh, it does take the uh, ambience and mystique away just a little bit so but that said uh, there's a couple of big stories uh, that i want to cover in the first half hour here in this free part of the broadcast after the free 30 minutes uh, i want to get into share some of my experiences if you listen to the sunday wire two weeks ago you'll know that uh, we made a little detour to oslo norway uh, and i wanted to visit and find out about the nobel peace prize museum and see what, you know, sort of presentation they're putting up there, and uh, I ran into uh, quite an interesting uh, situation there, uh, which I'm going to talk about in the uh, uh, second part of this podcast for members, but, uh, and we will be following up, hopefully, I'm working with another writer on an article uh, really detailing a very peculiar role that Norway is playing uh, in the ISIS crisis, if you will, Uh, and a very unusual actor in this uh, uh, menagerie of uh, coalition countries, NATO member countries uh, in Syria, and uh, Norway's very peculiar role in that conflict, which we'll cover, and some of the things that we discovered when we were in Oslo. So that's very interesting, and thank you to our listeners and some of our members from Norway as well. Uh, we've got a few now, and uh, we do appreciate their interest uh, and some very, very switched on people. I can tell you I've been liaising or getting some communications from people in Norway after that Sunday Wire broadcast where I mentioned this uh, situation with the Nobel Peace Prize uh, Center, and uh, it's very interesting. So I would say some very switched on uh, very educated, uh, informed uh, listeners and readers in Norway, very impressed uh, with some of the stuff they've sent me. Uh, so we're going to look a little bit further into that. But uh, I also had a chance to go to a couple of flashpoints uh, in the last month uh, for the migrant crisis. One of them is Germany, uh, and the other is uh, Italy. Uh, the German aspect of the migrant crisis, and I say migrant crisis there's a problem in the language of this straight off the bat. These aren't all uh, migrants uh, as such. Many of them are refugees. Uh, so to call it a migrant crisis, again, is probably mislabeling it. But yet, this is the term that the media is using, so we'll, we'll stick to it. Uh, we'd rather call it the migrant siege uh, rather than the migrant crisis. But uh, it's, So it's not technically all migrants. Uh, so many of them are refugees, and therein lies part of the problem, which I'm going to explain to you about this story. So the, the situation in Germany uh, is volatile. It's just one incident after another uh, in the media has been uh, portrayed as uh, either uh, refugee or migrant-linked or uh, ISIS-inspired, ISIS-linked. So if you actually look and you break down Uh, Some of these stories, one by one, you'll find quite incredibly that uh, Germany as the front line, so to speak, of this kind of uh, ISIS uh, siege on Europe. Uh, There was just another incident actually tonight, uh, but it was in Switzerland near Liechtenstein. And this was a kerosene attack uh, where somebody, we don't know who, we don't know of what persuasion, poured kerosene on uh, some passengers in a Swiss commuter train uh, outside of the city of uh, Sales near Liechtenstein and then lit them on fire and attacked them with a knife, apparently. And there were some people injured. Uh, No fatalities to my knowledge. Uh, but uh, lots of helicopters rescue helicopters, a huge police response almost like similar to a drill uh, like we'd see in America. but we don't we can't say exactly what this was yet but yet if you read some of the media they're sort of hinting with bated breath, hoping it seems anyway uh, that the media is hoping that somebody heard somebody say Allah Akbar and so I get you get this feeling when these Stories are gestating that uh, there's definitely this desire, especially on the part of the media and uh, some politicians to want to make it uh, an ISIS attack. This is what we saw in Germany. If you look back at the sort of progression of of ISIS events in Germany and you actually investigate each and every one of them individually, uh, we call this the Gestalt, the Gladio Gestalt uh, in the past episodes. Of the Sunday Wire But you look at these and they're not actually ISIS linked uh, When you really dig down into them The February knife attack This was a young uh, teenage girl I think 19 years old Mental issues uh, Safia S is her name Uh, We're told this was an ISIS inspired attack because a prosecutor In Germany said so So again there's no evidence To link her to ISIS Or Al Qaeda or anything uh, so anyway, there's that one. Then in May, in Grafting, Germany, we had a knife attack, and that was initially reported that some that the knife men had shouted "Allah Akbar," you know, the usual, and that was then retracted. Uh, but nonetheless, this goes into a list when you look at some of these newspaper articles, and they they list these events like a timeline, and they say this is the proof that Germany's on the front line in the fight against ISIS, etc. But when you actually Dig into any one of these; uh, the ISIS implication is very spurious at best. July 17th, Wurzburg, ISIS-inspired axe attacker injured. Originally, they said injured 21, and now uh, I just looked at a BBC report today about the Swiss kerosene attack, and uh, they made a reference back to the Wurzburg uh, incident. I think this was, I believe, a young Afghani uh, boy, uh, 17 years old, possibly living in foster care. Hopefully I got this right. (laughs) There's so many of these attacks, but uh, BBC said only injured four. So again, the numbers change. He was shot dead, we're told anyway, by German special police, uh, this axe murderer, uh, axe attacker. And uh, then we have another uh, machete attack the following week. this was i think this was in the town of uh, R- uh, rutingen uh, and this was a, a allegedly a refugee maybe that had his asylum case rejected i'm not sure syrian and this was on the 25th of july and uh, they want to label this as somehow connected with the migrant crisis uh, but the you know the rank and file basic mainstream uh, tabloid media will just say this is ISIS related uh, and let me see what else have we got here Ansbach. Uh, the following week or around that time I think this was the end of July yeah same week Ansbach, Germany backpack bombing allegedly somebody maybe an asylum seeker uh, not sure exactly his profile but um to few, so a few days after this And a few days after the axe attack uh, ISIS uh, the, axe, the axe attacker ISIS claims it was one of ours One of our soldiers He was a soldier of the Islamic State What does that mean? What does that mean? That he represents our values Or was he on the list? Was he on a database? Uh, did, was he a card carrying ISIS member? Uh, I doubt it At 17 years old But yet the narrative exists and persists then we have the munich shooting that was an iranian born uh, a german born half iranian boy uh, allegedly shot nine people in the street i guess and then was shot dead by uh, german police uh, allegedly shouting anti immigrant expletives and then someone else claimed he said the uh, the standard the routine allah akbar again and that was lumped in with immigration and ISIS. So every single one of these events, um, yes, they might be immigrant-related, some of them, but not ISIS-related. Uh, I don't think you can actually prove any of these. And ISIS putting up something on their website, on their, they have a, I guess they have a press agency now called AMAC, uh, sounds like a Middle Eastern construction company, not to be confused with another... A corporation with the same name uh Amak says oh it's one of ours and they did this twice within this list of events which i've told you here they could come out put something on their website in a couple of days and say that the swiss train kerosene attacker was one of theirs as soon as they get a little bit of information uh, from the press they could say yes it was one of ours same with the Thailand terrorist attacks, a string of uh, allegedly terrorist attacks hitting tourist spots uh, in Thailand. Uh, we don't know. There's no ISIS fingerprint, nothing. I guess these were bombs, makeshift bombs or something. Um, so what I'm saying here, ladies and gentlemen, is that you we don't know, and you don't know, and I don't know, and... I would say for the most part from what I've read the police investigating some of these events don't know who's responsible, why it happened. But I'll tell you what I do know. Here's what we here's what we do know. What we do know is that in the 1960s, 70s and 80s it's a fact there was something called Operation Gladio. And it's a fact that NATO intelligence dropped in sort of uh, special force uh, contingents uh, into countries like Belgium where they were lying in hiding for two weeks and murdered civilians. We know that Gladio set off bombs at train stations in Europe that murdered civilians in Europe during the 1980s, possibly much more in 70s, 90s, 1960s as well. There's a lot going on. The Cold War is going on. It's a high-stakes game of uh, nuclear arms race. The Pershing uh, uh, missiles, cruise missiles, nuclear-tipped missiles being installed in Europe by the United States effectively. Uh, this is causing a serious, uh, tense arms race. Security concerns, NATO's uh, very remit uh, being studied very closely at the time, and meanwhile, Gladio is going on in the background. Okay, this is not unlike the situation which we have today, and this is what I'm trying to get across to people, to think a little bit harder and look, just think a little bit more when you see these stories, pause, reserve your judgment of who you think did it, who you think is responsible, and wait, read, look at the context of it. Look at the history of something like a Gladio. This has already been done by Western governments to their own people. So they already have a track record, okay? So forget about the lone wolf narrative, uh, the known wolf narratives, etc. cetera. Uh, forget about these for the moment. And look at this situation and ask yourself how much of these are contrived? How much of these are being misrepresented? Ask yourself how easy as it is to manipulate the security narrative by simply posting something on a social media account, like a video, like what happened this week with the 2017 Miss Universe pageant in the Philippines scheduled for January 30th next year, early next year. And somebody, we're told, uh, someone who... The authorities believe is ISIS, or an ISIS-affiliated, or ISIS-related, or ISIS-inspired, or whatever, releases a video saying they're planning a bomb for the Miss Universe pageant. There's a story up at 21st Century Wire, uh, which we posted this weekend, about this very story. And you have to ask yourself, are the public that stupid to believe that ISIS or somebody, one of ISIS's soldiers of God, or whatever... Uh, would post a how-to video uh, six months before the event. So p- the Philippines uh, military is on high alert, et cetera, et cetera. You can see how this story is being spun the media. I mean, come on. At some point, you have to say this. this is a highly manipulative situation. We're in an environment, a hyper-reactive environment, where anything, absolute anything that's posted could be construed, As ISIS uh, related, affiliated, or inspired, it's a pretty wide catchment net, okay, or imagined to be ISIS. And anybody could put something up, including the same people who ran Gladio and who are running, probably running Gladio today or a Gladio derivative, but with a slightly different uh, set of objectives really with the same methods as we saw. The gangs and the counter gangs, the pseudo gangs, uh, the state, the intelligence apparatuses, working with organized crime syndicates, as they did with Gladio, working through secret societies, as they did with Gladio. This is not fiction, folks. This is fact. But this is a part of history that is most mainstream media journalists and pundits are totally ignorant of. Because they don't want to look in there because it's an ugly part of history. And it's messy. And the gray areas are very difficult to decipher. You know, if you think you're going to get your, your conclusion in a few words of sound bites, uh, it's not going to happen here. This isn't that type of story. Very few stories are like that. Uh, that's a news flash for uh, people working as uh, journalists, journalists. Um, or purporting to be journalists, uh, very few stories uh, you can just roll up into sound bites. Most of them are incredibly complex, and usually the perpetrators are not who you think they are. And most conspiracies, and there are conspiracies, conspiracies are real, and many of the times the person who's paying for the operation is not connected at all to the operation. So the bottom line is that it does take a, a degree of Uh, discerning uh, investigation, and a little bit of patience, and you have to have an open mind. Okay, so when you're looking at all these so-called ISIS-inspired attacks or commuter train attacks, axe murder attacks, whatever, knife attacks, uh, some of these could be just completely psychotic individuals, which there are more and more of running around. There's more and more people on prescription drugs, on non-prescription drugs, there's, there's people who have been uh, transplanted out of one culture in one country and dropped into another, who the meaning of their life is completely up in the air, literally the meaning of your existence. There's people who are born and raised in Europe that are going through identity crises and are going completely bonkers. So uh, I think we're seeing more and more. There, there is a collective madness that is setting in, unfortunately. Uh, and it has to do with the dysfunctionality of society. Uh, the complete hypocrisy and uh, pathological lying of uh, government leaders, uh, of the media. Uh, So they're selling one story that's totally different from the reality. And I think a lot of people are aware of this already, by the way, Uh, this isn't a big news flash. So there's a disconnect happening. There's a disconnect between consensus reality, which is the the, uh, the version of reality that's being sold by the mainstream media, by the political leadership, by the corporate uh, entities. That's consensus reality. That's the, what we're, we're supposed to believe because we're told it's a consensus and we should believe that. And then there's the real reality. That's what that's what you see on the street. It's what you feel in your gut. It's what you really believe you're, you're, and what you're seeing every day. It's the reality of the real reality of the situation. It is not as it's being portrayed at all on television, in the newspapers, and out of the mouths of politicians. And there's one story, I'll, I'll push this story out to you right now, that embodies this more than anything. Mounties raced against time to capture their bomber. This is in the Evening Standard. I picked this up last night, and I could, I could flip through this paper, and there's just... Fear-mongering after fear-mongering. This is the free daily paper they give you out on the London transport system. So millions of people read this every day. This this is a pure propaganda rag. This is social engineering writ large. And listen to this story. Canadian Mounties races against time to get their bomber. FBI tip led police in Canada to find a terrorist before he could attack. A ticking bomb scenario. So straight out of uh, 24 with Kiefer Sutherland. So here we go. Evening Standard says an FBI tip triggered a race against time to identify and track down the balaclava-wearing would-be suicide bomber on the verge of committing an atrocity in Canada. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police revealed details of the dramatic hunt for Aaron Driver, not to be confused with Minnie, uh, who was shot dead Officers on Wednesday after he detonated his explosive device in a taxi Good job Aaron driver. So 24 year old driver who had been listen to this. So this is a known wolf If you read 21st century war and you you read Sean Helton's work and you read about the Orlando shooting some of the stuff We published it's the known wolf known to the security services. This guy was not only known. He was a celebrity This reminds me of uh, Sheikh moose Musone. Um, from the Sydney siege last year, a known wolf and a bit of a media personality. So he's a, a ISIS, uh, gosh, this is so funny. It's, it's sad, but the, the, the fact they're trying to sell this and push this out as a real news story is amazing. So Driver24 had been banned from previously associating with ISIS extremists. So they, they said, Mr. Driver, you're banned from associating with those ISIS extremists. Okay, who many of them are connected to the intelligence services. So they slapped a band on them. we're told anyway. This could be all fiction, by the way. So Driver prepared a martyrdom video and was about to commit a terrorist attack. So says this news story. Uh, today, <laughs> ISIS's media arm, AMAC, <laughs> news agency, they have their own news agency, uh, to push out their own PR. That'll make it easy for site intelligence uh, in Bethesda, Maryland to do their job, which is to amplify all of the ISIS propaganda and then push that through CNN and Fox and the rest. So Amak, ISIS's uh, PR office, who, uh, where's their office? I don't know. Where is it? Somewhere in the Gulf. Uh, Or maybe it's in Maryland. Claimed that he was a soldier of the Islamic State. So a posting on uh, Amak's website said that his only mistake was in releasing the video before carrying out the attack. So he gets chastised by the, uh, the ISIS pundits there at Amak. So police said they received a mysterious tip-off from the FBI, from American authorities, at 8.30 a.m. on Wednesday. The FBI provided a screenshot and later a video of the mass suspect threatening a terrorist attack. Where did they get that? Probably from site intelligence. By 11 a.m., Canadian police sprung into action, and they had a good idea who he was, where he was. Of course, he was under surveillance. No big challenge there. driver planned to carry out a suicide bomb sometime within 72 hours in a public urban area during rush hour. Deputy of the uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, Commander Mike Cabana said it was a race against time. Officers then intercepted driver in a southern Ontario town, 140 miles from Toronto, as he entered a taxi with a backpack and said that uh, according to police, he detonated an explosive device, injuring himself and the taxi driver, not killing himself, not killing the taxi driver, and then the police came in and shot him dead. So it was unclear whether he died as a result of shrapnel or the police bullet. I mean, come on. They just said he just injured himself. So uh, what passes is news these days. In the video aired at a news conference uh, at the Mounties headquarters. They see him in Control Central there. They're playing the uh, balaclava-wearing ISIS, would-be ISIS video there, martyrdom video. Enemies of Islam, except we need to spill our blood. Pledged his allegiance to um, ISIS leader Abu Bakr al Baghdadi, who no one's actually seen. Who's probably an actor himself. That's actually been admitted by a U.S. military official. Uh, New York Times admitted that police swooped into the property just in time. Wow. This is straight out of, so basically this is straight out, this is a plot straight out of one of these action, terror, ticking bomb. So they got their ticking bomb. They got a real ticking bomb narrative after all this time. Finally, we get a real Kiefer Sutherland, Jack Bauer, 24, ticking bomb story. This is just beautiful. Absolutely gorgeous story here apparently this guy was wearing a gps ankle bracelet undergoing religious counseling uh released on bail held in custody uh regularly interrogated by police uh was featured in the media gave a media interview mainstream media interview earlier uh saying he expressed support for ISIS and wanted to travel to Syria to join them, etc. So he's kind of a celebrity. So is he an actor? I don't know. Sheikh Monin Sydney siege, same same exact MO, identical. Who is this guy? He's just some Canadian. His face is covered. Can't see him. Amazing. So this is in the, this is in the uh, Evening Standard. Great news story. Good job. Wonderful. So I'm going to talk to you about uh, Norway and my experience at the Nobel Peace Prize Museum. We're going to do that on the other side. So if you're listening to this podcast right now, this is the free uh, opening 30 minutes. If you want to hear the rest of this podcast, uh, if you're a member, go ahead and log in. If not, uh, you would like to subscribe and become a member. Uh, just click on the subscribe and join 21wire.tv button there and uh, find out more about it. Support our work here uh, at 21st Century Wire and 21wire.tv, all of our work, The Sunday Wire, by helping us, by subscribing, by becoming a member. We'll see you on the other side. where We'll take you inside the Nobel Peace Prize uh, Museum in Oslo, Norway, and look at ISIS's bizarre connection with this country of Norway Uh, we'll do that on the other side along with uh, some other stories Uh, this is on the QT at (laughs) 21wire.tv Tune in Sundays at noon Eastern Time or 9 a.m. Pacific Time for the Sunday Wire for three hours of action-packed talk radio on 21stCenturyWire.com and AlternateCurrentRadio.com. This is Patrick Henningsen, and you're listening to On the QT at 21Wire.tv. Accessing confidential data. Welcome back to On the QT at 21Y.TV. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. Thank you for joining us, for rejoining us. If you're here, if you click through, uh, you are a subscriber and a member to 21Y.TV. And I just want to take this opportunity to thank you for your support. You are an early adopter. Uh, as you know, we've just launched this drive, the subscription membership drive, in the last couple of months this summer. I'm still working out uh, quite a few issues uh, in streamlining. The programming, but uh, I think we're we're getting we're getting there, and I think in fact I think we are there. Um, there's a few more technical issues to to iron out as well, but uh, we'll do that uh, in the coming days and weeks. But uh, thank you so much for rejoining us for this members-only section of the podcast, and this is where you know I'll be able to share a little bit more insight uh, and some uh, inside experiences, information. Uh, before you might see it up at 21stCenturyWire.com uh, Now I want to talk about Norway uh, for a moment But before that, um, you know, we were talking about the Evening Standard And these free newspapers that they're giving out on, like, say, the London Underground and train stations It's just wall-to-wall terror So this is this, the front-page story, Tourist Terror A couple of bombs went off uh, around Thailand Uh, spread out very nicely, well-organized, hitting all the uh, tourist spots in each specific region of Thailand. Uh, Little small bomb blasts. Uh, I don't know exactly how many people have been killed or injured, but I'm looking at the photos now, which have been released by the press. I don't see anybody who looks like they're seriously injured at all. I see a lot of uh, uh, scantily clad tourists being carried by Thai Special Forces almost as if they're posing for photos. It's hard to tell really what you're looking at sometimes But uh, I see this sort of little t- torn t-shirt blood splattered on the ground But no injury on the actual person themselves. Um, so again, we're not I'm not sure exactly what this is uh, But certainly looks like a, a very good media opportunity uh, if you're wanting to Create a security uh, state or security crisis. Uh, once again, it's hard to it's hard to know uh, if there's an Islamic uh, ISIS inspired aspect to it. They're calling it a Mumbai style attack. Right next to it is is the more interesting story. And whenever you see these high profile so called terrorist uh, events, there's pretty much on a daily basis now uh, somewhere uh, in some country in some way. So this is the next to it, you'll find the important story. Here's the important story. This is next to the big, high-profile Thailand tourist attack. Headline, small firms in the UK urged to plan for impact of major terror attack. I'll repeat that in case you are not taking notes. Small firms in the UK urged to plan for the impact of a major terrorist attack. London businesses need food, drink, and security staff. This includes small to medium-sized firms. Now, let me just get something straight here for the layperson. If you've been in business, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Small to medium-sized firms, many of them are struggling just to get by. Okay, Many of the directors of these firms, the bosses, don't often don't pay themselves salaries for long periods of time. If you've had your own business you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, so now here's what the newspaper, this is the message they're putting out, is small to medium-sized businesses need to get on the terrorist bandwagon. They need security. They need to stock up on food and drink. I mean, unbelievable. A major terrorist attack is imminent in London, according to this article. Thousands of small to medium-sized firms need to strengthen their plans to cope for a Mumbai-style terror attack in London. Businesses chiefs warn today. What does that mean? I mean, the Mumbai-style terrorist attacks, the ones in Mumbai and Bombay, India, a few years ago, they didn't affect that many small businesses. I think uh, there was a hotel that was uh, certainly affected by that, but that was a very dodgy event if you go back to study it. Uh, Of course, no mention of any of the dodginess of that event in this article. Uh, So business group London First said bosses should plan for an attack. In uh, an impact that would last several days. So a several day long terrorist attack. This is interesting. What have they got in their mind? Mu- what are they cooking up? While police may have dealt with the immediate terror incident swiftly, the capital could still be under major restrictions if a manhunt is on the way for armed killers. Many large companies will already have prepared for such scenarios. I'll bet some of them might have hired a company like Visor Consultants and a man like Peter Power. Of course, he was doing just this uh, on the morning of the London 7-7 bombs, July 7, 2005. Peter Power from Visor Consultants was fronting a 1,000-person drill, uh, a scenario which depicted terrorist attacks at the exact same underground stations uh, as the ones where uh, supposedly bombs went off that very same morning in the famous 7-7 attack. What were they doing for real? We'd like someone to ask that question one of these years, uh, but anyway, that's all locked up nicely under a national security letter. So here we go. Visor consultants type drills. London first is there what they're called. Wow, this is interesting. Where does it end, ladies and gentlemen? Oh, planning for enough food and drink and other essentials at the workplace to last for a protracted period. So they're saying that the whole city will be in lockdown. You wouldn't be able to leave your building. uh, Having systems in place to locate staff to ensure their well-being. Well, we have SMS text message systems already. But mobile networks will be down for sure as was the case during 7-7. So I've I've been through this during 7-7 before and also communicating with staff. So I have been in this situation 10 years ago. And I can tell you that uh, you can't completely plan for a situation like that, but then later I learned what was going on with 7-7 in reality. And then obviously that changes my view of the event completely. But uh, shelter in place, lockdown city, small businesses need to spend more money uh, to be ready for a terrorist attack in London that will last for days, so says the Evening Standard and London first. Wow. Oh, terrorist hotline. Here we go, folks. So clearly, this is uh, the Deputy Assistant Commissioner Neil Busu from the National Operations uh, says, Clearly, of the police yes, police lead for protecting and preparing. Clearly, we need to encourage all members of the community uh, as it is communities who will defeat terrorism to report anything they see as suspicious by calling 999 in an emergency or using 101 or an anti-terrorist hotline, uh, 0800-789-321. So... Wow, this is interesting. Well, you know, someone should call that hotline and say, uh, did you know that uh, Visor Consultants was running a drill in the morning of 7-7, hitting the exact same underground stations at the exact same times? Wow, what a coincidence. Maybe someone should call and have someone look into that. Interesting, isn't it? But uh, that's just a little sample of what's in the uh, evening standard. Every day, the daily terror. It should change the name of the Evening Standard to The Daily Terror. Have a nice little masthead. Well, if I could, if I could, if I had Rupert Murdoch's uh, resources, I would just just launch a free paper called The Daily Terror. Just just get it out, uh, you know, get, get it over with. Just call it what it is. It's The Daily Terror. It's not The Evening Standard. Let's be honest about it. Maybe we can get closer to healing. Maybe we can heal. Uh, if we're just honest about the fact that we're being brainwashed constantly and I've got my producer Spot uh, here with us in studio hello spot spot is uh, what's he doing he's he's stretching on my notebook and uh, was was sleeping on my brief thank you spot he just uh, head-butted the microphone well wow. he's a good cat so while spot's trying to uh destroy the studio um i'll carry on uh we also have the migrant crisis now here's an interesting uh this the telegraph magazine london telegraph put out a glossy magazine every weekend and the cover of this magazine has a very evocative picture of Some refugees, and the headline is "A World on the Move: A Refugee Crisis Seen Through the Eyes of Magnum Photographers." So, Magnum, the world's leading photographic agency, has a a wonderful expose on the migrant crisis. And you just start thumbing through this thing, and you can see how synchronized the propaganda really is, and. This is written like a sort of a high school expository essay. I'll read you the first paragraph. It's just so, it's so cliched and stuff has just been done to death. Uh, and, And meanwhile, we'll just flip it on its head while we're here. So here's what they say. A single image can cover everything from desperation to hope, from cruelty to kindness, from a movement of geopolitical significance to a moment of individual human drama. I mean, it's almost like they've got college students writing this stuff. It's so cliched. It's so trite. It's, where are all the journalists? I guess they can't afford real journalists. They're all gone now. Uh, so they're, they've got college kids writing this stuff. It's really bad. So first paragraph, In South Sudan, women and children crawl across a sun-baked field, scrambling for grains that have spilled out of bags dropped from the air. In Austria, a young Syrian girl witnesses her first snowfall is a picture of an innocent delight as she waits with her family to cross the border into Germany, into Deutschland. And on the Greek island of Lesbos, a mother who has struggled to safety after a perilous journey uh, by dinghy cradles the sun in her arms. Their faces a picture of anguish an image that evokes the grief-stricken drama of the Pietà rendered in the Caravaggio painting. Oh my goodness, this is just too much. This is just too much. The cheese is so thick you can cut it with a meat cleaver. This. So this is the Telegraph magazine. Oh, but it gets better. I mean, I will give anybody... Right now, 20 quid, if they can read this straight through without having a drink at some point during this article. It's, I don't know how many pages long, 20 pages long, just gushing with this sort of stuff. But here's the interesting bit. So you can tell how they're prioritizing the propaganda. Photographer Jerome Sassini. He is uh, photographing, of course, the Syrian conflict. Here he is. So in February, French photographer Jérôme Sassini traveled to Damascus and Homs to document the destruction caused by a five-year-long civil war. There's the first lie. It's not a civil war. If the fighters are being shipped in, funded, armed by U.S., U.K., and French governments, and Saudi, and Qatari, and Turkey, and trained in Jordan, Uh, That's not a civil war, folks. That's an invasion. Okay, so this is amazing, the propaganda. So here's Jerome, the photographer. I have already been to Syria three times, uh, but on the side of the rebels, principally in Aleppo. So he's in uh, eastern Aleppo with terrorists, basically, but he says rebels. Uh, This is the first time I have been able to go to Syria on an official visa from the regime, he said. So he gets an, a, a visa from the Syrian government, and he calls them the regime. This is interesting. I don't think he'll get any more visas after this article. But uh, thanks to the International Red Cross, oh, my goodness, here we go. I spent a week in Damascus in Homs and in districts that are controlled by the Syrian army and the rebels. Uh, so it's basically the regime, the regime... The regime, no mention of Western uh, involvement or Gulf State involvement in this uh, conflict. It's not a civil war, ladies and gentlemen. This is the first lie that you'll see whenever you're reading propaganda. And uh, again, it goes on and on. And then, then we talk about the uh, the migrant crisis through Libya. Very few, if e- ever, mentioned any of these situations about the causes of the refugee crisis the causes of the conflict themselves now this brings us to Norway so I was in Oslo in Norway never been and uh but there's you know some things I wanted to learn and find out and one of them was I had uh, seen a lot of disturbing reports uh including well we'll get to that in a minute but Went to the Nobel Peace Prize Museum. I wanted to see what was going on. Uh, I wanted to see if uh, how vaunted uh, Al Gore and Barack Obama are in there. Uh, is, does Henry Kissinger still have his picture up on the wall, etc. And it it is a funny temple of sorts. Uh, it's right downtown in the harbor. This is the Nobel Peace Prize Museum. Now the I, th- I think it's the Alfred Nobel. Uh, Prize for literature, for science, for peace—all uh, of those are awarded in Stockholm. Uh, but the Nobel Peace Prize is somehow assigned to Norway, in Oslo. So that it's a slightly different ceremony that's done there than the o- other Nobel prizes, uh, which are done in Stockholm in Sweden, next door. So, so I'm going in there, and I'm upstairs. Uh, there's an exhibition upstairs. And so I joined a, a sort of standard tour that leaves every, I guess, every hour, uh, takes you around the museum. And so I was shattering this tour, and they had a kind of an Arab Spring sort of theme going on in part of the upstairs uh, on the first floor. And so the tour guide, who was, she looked to, to me like she was North African, uh, possibly from Tunisia or something like this, I'm not sure, but... Uh, or she could have been Arabic, but I think she was North African. And so she's got a group of American tourists there, families as well, and a few other foreign uh, tourists. And she starts talking about the Arab Spring. And she starts talking about how it spread like like a grass fire of liberty uh, throughout the Arab countries, starting in uh, Egypt, and, or Tunisia, and then Egypt uh, in 2010, uh, 2010. 11, 12, etc. And she's saying, oh, then it came to Libya. And, uh, and then she said, and the Libyan government then collapsed and it's been caused much uh, trouble in Libya. Not one mention of the fact that uh, the reason the state of Libya collapsed is because the government was decapitated by NATO, by, and, and by anyone's, Measure an illegal uh, NATO no-fly zone was imposed. This and and they started bombing. So the bombing was not part of the UN resolution one nine seven three. NATO went beyond any UN resolution. They managed to hoodwink the rest of the world to say that we need to stop. uh, We need to create a no-fly zone because Gaddafi is using the air force to gun down peaceful flower-throwing protesters in the streets of Tripoli. This, of course, was a big lie. But anyway, uh, those lies seem to be uh, all fair game and commonplace when it comes to ramping up a military humanitarian intervention. This is what happened in Libya. Okay, and then we were, uh, our government, United States and the other NATO member countries, with the help of the Muslim Brotherhood government who was currently in power in Egypt at that time, led by Mohamed Morsi, Uh, was trafficking large amounts of hardware and weaponry uh, from Egypt into Libya and also some arriving by sea to Benghazi, uh, all being supervised by the Central Intelligence Agency, no doubt. Uh, There were British special forces on the ground from the beginning of this conflict, SAS soldiers or MI6 or British intelligence. So it was a whole kind of cluster team effort uh, and the French were running point on the airstrikes and sort of the NATO uh, drive, uh, but really, it was, NATO is was run by the United States. So, but they let the they let French drop a few uh, a few bombs uh, at the beginning, especially, and let them get their hands dirty. And so, this is how Libya collapsed. Not one mention of this from the tour guide at the Nobel Peace Prize Museum. Not one mention. It's almost like people have this selective idea, this ide- idealized vision of an Arab Spring as it would exist in a vacuum of, uh, without any Western military uh, material support or intelligence support or Gulf state money uh, from the UAE, from Qatar, from Saudi Arabia. doesn't exist, apparently. Uh, and no Muslim brother activity either uh when you're talking about it in pristine sanitized terms you don't factor in any of this stuff it's like just people rising up for their freedom okay so anyway i bit my tongue i thought okay that's okay whatever then she starts lecturing everybody about syria and how the arab spring uh took hold of syria and how the evil uh syrian government is uh killing so many of its own people, and even used, she said, and this is when things got a little bit testy, she said that Assad and the government of Syria used chemical weapons against its own people in uh, 2013. This is what she was referring to, probably East Ghouta, suburb of Damascus, August 2013. Chemical weapons, sarin gas specifically, the accusation was, just as UN weapons inspectors rolled into town, what a coincidence, uh, this so-called chemical weapons attack is launched. So she's basically reinforcing this narrative, which was really being pushed hard, especially by the by John Kerry in the United States, and I think it was William Hague at the time, was Foreign Secretary, and uh, David Cameron, and, and all the rest of the usual suspects. So basically... They wanted a war, and they were going to use that as the pretext for the war, weapons of mass destruction. Remember that old chestnut? They tried that in 2013. In August, Britain, Cameron lost the war vote, uh, shut down basically (laughs) the effort right there. The United States couldn't move at that point, so they had to sort of kick the can down the road and then do this under the table, funding a, a proxy Militias and extremist terrorist factions uh, for the next few years uh, in northern Syria, running a dirty war essentially, gangs and counter gangs, as we said in the last segment. So, as she said, this Assad or Syrian government used chemical weapons against its own people. Well, I know this to be false. It's not a question of opinion, but I know this to be false. So I raised my hand. I said, "Sorry, but that's that's not true." I said, "That's." uh, that's actually, the uh, I think it's U.N. weapons in, inspector. I, it might have been Inspector DeMarco, I'm not sure, but uh, basically U.N.'s own weapons inspector uh, testified to the fact that this wasn't the case. The Massachusetts Institute of Technology did an investigation saying that this wasn't the case. And yet we have someone lecturing at the Nobel Peace Prize Museum Who is pushing propaganda, pro-war propaganda, straight out of the State Department, straight out of NATO, straight out of the Foreign Office. The usual suspects who are constantly shilling for war on a false pretense. And you have someone in the Nobel Peace Prize Museum pushing this old, tired, recycled chemical weapons propaganda. I was just gobsmacked. I thought, wow. And they're running like two or three of these tours a day. There's people traveling from all over the world to this museum. And they're all getting brainwashed, essentially. And so we had a little bit of an argument. And uh, some of the tourists were upset because maybe the moment was ruined. You know, they're having their sort of feel-good tour through the Nobel Peace Prize Museum. And who's this guy in the back uh, challenging the tour guide? Well, I was probably the most unpopular guy in Oslo at that moment, Uh, according to some people. Hopefully other people would look into that and uh, investigate that claim for themselves. But then she said to me, well, that's your opinion. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm going to stop you there. With all respect, due respect, madam, it's not a question of opinion. It's a question of historical fact. And uh, the Syrian government did not use chemical weapons against its own people, Uh, at that, in that incident, and I haven't seen anything to verify that they have in any other instance. However, I do have a lot of evidence that the so-called Islamic State and other derivatives thereof, uh, terrorist groups, moderate rebels, if you want to call them that, uh, they were using crude chlorine bombs. We were one of the first people in English to break that story back in March 2013. So I do know a, f- a few things about this topic, uh, especially the, cl- the crude chlorine bombs. But we can also talk about the makeshift sarin, which was used in uh, in, in Damascus in the Ghouta, East Ghouta suburb uh, in August at that time. So we a, lo- a lot of fake uh, uh, chemical weapons accusations levied at the Syrian army or the Syrian government in order to create a... Uh, situation where they've crossed the red line and the West have to intervene on a moral ground, a humanitarian intervention, uh, just basically Iraq all over again. That's all that's all it is. Isn't it amazing that the the world's preeminent institution to pr- supposedly promote peace is pushing some of the most egregious and deceptive talking points? that have all been since laid to rest, they're still recycling it in the Nobel Museum. Isn't that amazing? And it got me me thinking, and so we did a little more research, and we find out some interesting facts. There is a disproportionately high number of ISIS commanders that come from which country? Well, you'd never guess it, would you? They come from Norway. Now that's interesting. I thought we have a number of stories uh, that will talk about this, and back and then I find uh, some more interesting stories that uh, so Norway, so all these ISIS commanders from Norway are popping up, some alive, some dead, and then we find out something interesting that Norway is sending sixty of their best special forces, uh, who were. Temporarily deployed to Jordan this summer uh, and preparing. I don't have any confirmation that they're supposed to be moved to Syria. What were they doing in Jordan? They're training moderate rebels, which we know don't exist. They're like unicorns. No one's ever seen one. These are terrorists, basically. So Norway sent their 60 of their top guys to Jordan to train the moderate terrorists Uh, who are going to be called the New Syrian Army. I'm not kidding. And this is also known as uh, Jayesh uh, Surya al-Jadid. Jayesh Surya al-Jadid. The New Syrian Army, trained by Norwegian Special Forces. Okay, and these are supposed to be Sunnis. Again, (laughs) uh, Moderate rebels equals terrorist. So, what's Norway doing? Training insurgents, Sunni insurgents, many of whom probably of the Islamicist militant variety, or if not all of them, maybe members or will be fighting for ISIS. Isn't this interesting? And they're supposed, supposedly, Norway says they're doing this to, to so they can fight against Daesh or and not the Assad government. So, uh, Another fictional, what I think is another fairy tale bit of mythology, is that uh, there is all these all the moderate rebels that are being backed by by the by NATO member countries are, are not fighting the Assad government, but they're only fighting ISIS. I don't think there is very many of these so-called moderate rebels or Al Qaeda types fighting ISIS. I really don't. I I think that ISIS and Al Nusra are ubiquitous among all groups. And it's just a question of flags and labels, folks. But yet they've duped the Western public into buying into this uh, fantasy that somehow there's these separate groups and they're lying differently, which is, I, I don't know. I, th- I think there's there's quite a few people in the West that are stupid enough, especially in the media, to, to swallow this. Because when they swallow all the nuances that are being pushed off uh, by the... Likes of the CIA media department and so forth—that that the, the, oh this this group isn't either moderate or they're slightly less terroristic than that group—and those aren't ISIS; those are Al Nusra, and Al Nusra just rebranded themselves to call themselves something else. Uh, if you believe all this, uh, like most journalists do, they they claim that their knowledge of all these groups and subgroups, gangs and counter gangs, pseudo gangs, they claim that. Their their intricate knowledge, of being able to to rattle off the names of all these, like you would a football squad, or the you know the top of the table of the Premier League or Syria in Italy, it's like it's like sports commentating. That somehow your knowledge of all these gangs and counter gangs makes you a knowledgeable journalist. But the fact that you're pushing all this out, you're 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 assigning some legitimacy to what is clearly contrived gangs and counter gangs and i've just shown you being trained by nato special forces in this case norwegian and so th- is there a correlation between norway special forces training the gangs and ca- islamic gangs and counter gangs and the fact that a number of these isis commanders who turning up alive and dead are norwegian do you think there's some crossover there by any chance? Do you think this is all separate or are all these things related? I'll say they're related. What is going on in Norway? And so they, 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 this was a story back in March uh, 2015. This is from the Daily Mail. To Valhalla, crack Norwegian punisher troops sent to Iraq to help take on uh, fanatical ISIS army. So the the, the famous Telemark Battalion. This is an elite uh, mechanized Norwegian Army infantry unit. Supposedly soldiers known for uh, wearing patches with the uh, Punisher emblem on them. Comic book characters on their uniforms. That inspires a lot of confidence, uh, doesn't it? So uh, this is interesting. So working with the Peshmerga to oust ISIS. Uh, in the region, in Iraq, so it's it's interesting. You're going to find Norway in all these key positions. What is going on in Norway? Something is rotten in the state of Norway. Okay, too many ISIS, too many ISIS leaders uh, are are Norwegian. Uh, how are they radicali? Where are they radicalizing? This is amazing. Here here, here we go. New Norwegian take top role in ISIS jihadi groups. This is February 2015. And so they all seem to be coming out of this. uh, This is according to the Norwegian intelligence services. We believe that some of the Norwegians in ISIS have risen to middle middle management functions, uh, including one, uh, Bastien Vasquez, he's a guy from Chile, who's a Norwegian citizen from Oslo. This is amazing. How do you you rationalize all this? I don't know. I don't know, but we're going to put a report together. That'll probably be out pretty soon, uh, which will detail some of this. But uh, there's a lot more going on than meets the eye, and so you do have to look a little bit closer and read between the lines. And uh, it's interesting. It's very, very interesting. So Norway, Norway's got a, a unique position. Uh, in all this and they're also featured in a number of interesting WikiLeaks cables And I'm wondering, you know Norway is is important because They're one of the lead peace negotiators In any of these sort of big big peace negotiations like the for the Oslo Accords And talking about between Israel and Palestine and this there's, there's still A pivotal country in those particular negotiations and so somehow they're being drawn into this ISIS drama, Norway is. And it's, it's, it's interesting. So they've gone from being politically very anti-Zionist in Norway, and then all of a sudden the Andres Breivik massacre occurred in 2011, which is a textbook Gladio event. Breivik, a Christian Zionist, a Mason, a Templar, Knights Templar, goes on a rampage, we're told. Couldn't have been done by one gunman, so he bombed a building and then managed to sprint across to an island where there were all these young uh, children of uh, labor politicians. Uh, it was like a young labor movement. I'm not sure the details of it, but I reported on it many years ago and managed to kill 77 uh, people, many of them young teenagers on a, a, a holiday retreat for this politi- young political leaders sort of conference on one of the many islands there uh, in, in Oslo and this is Andres Brevik total psychopath did he do it I don't know it looked like the work of multiple gunmen in fact many people said so at the time but it what it did is it created a pivot all of a sudden people looked at maybe looked at this as a bad omen uh in terms of having a negative image of Israel. And since then, there's been a slight gradual pivot to support, to become more friendly with Israel uh, in Norway ever since the Breivik attack. This is interesting. And now you have a situation where if you really, if you wanna break it down to its sort of individual parts, uh, you have to look at what this means. So if you're, according to, according to Israel, if you are anti-Israel, in other words, if you're, if you're like Norway had a position that was pro-Palestinian before, around 2011, up to that point, and that's read pro-Palestinian is equals, according to the Israeli, is anti-Israeli. Okay, so according to them, and they're, you're with us, they're against us, a binary narrative, you can't be pro-Palestinian and you can't be pro-Israeli at the same time, you're automatically anti-Israeli. So that also means if you're pro-Palestinian, then by extension you're anti-US, uh, you're anti-Washington foreign policy, which is very Israeli-oriented, and you could say the same for the UK, it uh, means that you're pro-Arab, which must mean you're anti-Jewish, according to their binary narrative, and uh, you're pro-Muslim, and... Uh, That means you're pro-ISIS, I guess. So in this convoluted world of political maxims, uh, being pro-Palestinian means that you're uh, basically a a terrorist uh, or you're in league with terrorists, according to the uh, people who run the paradigms. Okay, So the Middle East peace process, Norway plays a crucial role in that. Hence, Norway is being pulled into the Syrian conflict in a very pivotal way. Uh, and so they're up to their neck in the dirt, uh, which is Syria. This is interesting. and the, So there's a lot of other things we could look a little bit deeper, including reading the WikiLeaks cables, uh, showing how the U.S., this is a big deal in Washington, somehow trying to nudge Norway closer to Israel and stamp out this anti-Israeli sentiment in the Norwegian political discourse. This is interesting. So this is all in WikiLeaks cables if you actually read them. And I've got a few in front of me. This would be a whole study in its own. We will try to synthesize some of this into, uh, into a maybe a feature article uh, in the coming weeks or days. But there's a lot more going on than meets the eye. Uh, especially with this story but uh, I was pretty shocked myself to find out some of this information so what's going on do do we have any justification to have NATO troops and we have troops from multiple countries on the ground in uh, Syria right now but not just in Syria we've also got uh, special forces on the ground in a number of countries so we've got People admitted uh, in Libya, I guess, uh, this week. That's interesting. Uh, We've also got forces. uh, We broke the story, by the way, first, 21st century war, U.S. Special Forces in Yemen. Uh, So we've got troops in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, and Yemen, all these countries under the radar. Uh, This is... Plus obviously many other deployments, but um, just just on that basis, uh, this is interesting. So that's what's going on right now. and uh, will we ever uh, get any clear explanation as to you know what is the legal justification for this? They say it's fighting ISIS. Well, I'm going to propose something controversial here is that without ISIS, NATO, the United States, This coalition has no business doing anything in Syria, no airstrikes, no troop deployments. They don't anyway under international law. They're freelancing it. They're cowboying it, claiming that they're doing this to fight the international scourge of ISIS. I propose that the West have created ISIS. They're maintaining ISIS, and they're doing that to justify their presence in the region, plain and simple, and to move quite a lot of military hardware, a lot of guns and arms. They're using this also to justify arming the rebels. It's just endless. So if you, if you create this, this spoiler, this boogeyman, these sand pirates, we're essentially privateers, which are ISIS. You create this problem, then you justify your footprint in the region internationally. You justify the coalition and any number of who knows what's going on uh, behind the scenes. It makes perfect sense. There's no doubt. The more I look at this, there's there's less and less doubt in my mind. And you just look at the command. If you go and study the command structure of these so-called militants, militant groups, these gangs and counter gangs, mainly ISIS, this is not a tribal, indigenous uh, organization. Uh, this mirrors a Western command structure: uh, the the level of organization and strategic information uh, gathering, and deployments and being able to maneuver. Uh, this. Mirrors a Western military organization not a a tribal militia. Okay, and they're not that sophisticated Unless they are completely staffed with Western special forces or military contractors, which essentially are privateers So I Don't know well. I do I do know that's that that's what it looks like. That's what it is so and still We're playing this charade in the media, pretending ISIS is uh, some sort of organic uh, upstart, uh, the Islamic state, they call it. It's not a state, and it's not Islamic. It's not a state, and it's not Islamic. And they have many different names for it. It's ISIL, then it's ISIS, then they call it Daesh endless it's not Islamic, it's not a state, it's contrived it's a construct and I would say they sure have a lot of American equipment uh, and they are being sourced from many many different countries and they've set up shop in Syria so it's not a civil war folks, it's a conflict, it's a proxy war it's a dirty war You'd, and you get rid of ISIS, you get Western support for the uh, moderate terrorists, the al Nusra's, and all the other, uh, Al Fatah and all the armies of conquest and all these other cohorts, terrorist cohorts, ISIS would be gone in two weeks. They'd be obliterated and crushed by the Syrian army, by the Russian Air Force, gone within weeks. This could have happened a year ago. But the West is insisting on keeping this conflict going uh, by backing the so-called rebels who are terrorists, who are fighting the Syrian government to a stalemate with people and innocent people caught in the middle, and and, and in in the process, keeping ISIS going, and thus justifying a huge U.S.-led military presence in the region. Plain and simple. It's not rocket science. That is what is happening. So I don't know how much more uh, and how much more detail we can break that down. But uh, it's, uh, I don't know what to say. It's getting kind of obvious by now. But, you know, even if it is obvious, and there's probably some people out there nodding their heads saying, Yeah, I know all that, Patrick. You know, I I don't need to hear this again. Let me tell you what the real challenge is, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, I'm talking to you. And yes, you are uh, an active um, and a very important part of getting the truth out. Our subscribers, our members, I know are very important because you're probably influential in your own peer groups, uh, socially, uh, friends, family, work colleagues. Okay? Okay. So if you really want to convince people what's going on, if you really believe this is what's going on, I hope, you know, maybe you do, maybe you don't. But if you really want to convince people, and especially people who are influencers themselves, um, university professors, people in public service, you have to be able to explain to them what's going on. It's not enough. I don't think, I think we're into a point now where it's not enough for you to know. That's the key first step, of course, is you need to realize and know and understand how this puzzle fits together and what's going on. But then you need to be able to articulate that to somebody who doesn't really have a lot of knowledge, maybe just your average person sitting on the fence. You need to be able to articulate these concepts in a way that they can understand, nice and simple. but, but not patronizing them. But you need to be able to articulate it in a way that people can understand. Something comprehensible. There's a lot of great commentators out there, but they talk about it. They talk about some of these things, and it, a lot of the stuff goes over people's heads. So you have to find a way to, to connect with people so they can understand and have that aha moment when the light bulb goes off. Ding. And that's it. Ah, I see how it fits together now. I understand and this is part of the challenge, and this is what hopefully everybody out there listening to this uh, episode of On the QT will. This will be your takeaway uh, for this episode, episode uh, number three. This will be your takeaway: is find a way that you can explain to people who are interested, but maybe not confident, maybe not certain, but but interested. To know more, you got to be able to paint that picture for them where it makes sense, and be well informed yourself. And I think if you're listening to this show and you're listening to the Sunday Wire and you're following the articles at 21st Century Wire and some of our f- content affiliates, uh, you're going to be very well informed, and you'll be able to be able to know where to find good information. Uh, so that's that's why we're here. This is part of our mission. This is our remit. Thank you for joining us, Uh, and I also want to say thank you to everybody uh, who's gone and bought t-shirts. We've sold a lot of t-shirts in the last week for some reason. Uh, So we've got 21st Century Wire t-shirts. They look pretty cool, Uh, kind of charcoal gray with the logo on the front. Uh, We've shifted quite a few of these. Um, In fact, if you're a charter or a lifetime member, you should have either gotten yours already in the post or it's coming. Uh, is Because I think we started shipping last week uh, So we're still getting uh, some of those t-shirts out Thank you so much uh, for joining We're just doing a special price uh, For those in the first month I guess We might extend that to the end of maybe September But that was just going to be for August But we'll stretch it a little bit more maybe So we just want get, to get some of these uh, shirts out to people So they can wear them around so people can see them But, uh, but thank you so much uh, for, for supporting us there too uh, so we're working, getting step by step. We're going to get more and more stuff online, uh, more and more stuff out there. It's going to get interesting. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for being a member. Thank you for subscribing. Tell your friends. Get people. Share this podcast, at least the free 30 minutes, uh, out on social media. And uh, until next time, which will hopefully be uh, mid- midweek, we'll, we'll fire off episode four of On the QT. And also there should be a newsletter coming out uh, and, and imminently, uh, maybe tomorrow. Uh, and the Sunday Wire will be live as well this weekend. Uh, if you're listening to this now, you probably already uh, are tuned into the Sunday Wire this weekend. We'll have another QT out midweek, I think. So we have a little catching up to do uh, for the weeks that we missed, just, just gone. But thank you very much. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. This is on the QT at 21wire.tv.